absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. And good morning. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. Coming up in uh, part two of this morning's program, uh, Dave Debo is going to talk with author Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo will be at Canisius College uh, this coming Saturday, as a matter of fact. She's the author of a book called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She'll be there with Nanette Massey for a special program on Saturday. That's coming up in part number two. But in uh, part one, we're going to talk about health literacy and with us uh, this morning we have uh, marissa colasanti she is from literacy buffalo niagara good morning to you good morning thanks for having me thanks for coming on in and also kelly walford who is the director of the erie county office of health equity good morning to you kelly good morning now, glad to have uh, both of you here uh this is an interesting uh, con- uh topic in a lot of different ways and let's just start off from the literacy point of view why is this an important issue Well, we know that about 18% of adults in Erie County have low literacy skills. Overall, this isn't health. Overall, overall. okay. And that means they are going to struggle with health literacy. And studies show that adults with low literacy skills report having five times more likely poor health outcomes, which means they are going to be struggling with their health. What kind of, I mean, it sounds obvious just what you get into because everybody knows that it can be very complex dealing with health issues when it comes out of the doctor's office or on the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. But can we get into some of the specifics of, of struggles that people might have? Are there some examples of that? Yeah, just A, not understanding how the healthcare system works. Where do you find help? Where do you find a primary care doctor? What do you go to the hospital for? Um, understanding when you do get care. What are you supposed to be doing to take care of yourself? Um, What are the doctor's orders? What are the prescription directions? Those sorts of things that are just hard to understand when you're struggling with literacy. Now, Kelly, what about when it comes to the the people who are struggling with literacy and health literacy? Are they also the people that we're seeing that are just are falling into these socioeconomic? uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Socioeconomic areas of, mm-hmm. of, of the city of Buffalo. Is that what we're really seeing here? Is that, are we seeing a commonality there? Yeah, there's, there's definitely intersectionality, right? You know, one issue, uh, we may try and put it in, in one bucket, but it, it overlaps. And so when you consider health literacy, when you consider literacy in general, um, people with low literacy have lower paying jobs, right? So that's less resources in the home. If they have lower paying jobs, they likely have poor housing options. Um, The rents in Buffalo have greatly increased. I know because I had to find some place to live last year. And, you know, I I have the means to be able to look and find and live somewhere that's appropriate. Uh, 
but folks that one don't know that they should have better and two know that they can demand better don't because of of the literacy issue right it, it um if you are an individual that has low literacy low health literacy um like other folks may compensate for deficiencies, you tend to compensate for what you don't have. And that comes out in many ways. And so people don't like to not know. They don't want to appear to not know and appear uh, inferior in their minds to someone who may be more educated, has a a degree or really knows a, a particular topic. And so for those folks, you know, there's that compensation piece. There is, you know, still trying to navigate the world. And that overlaps with your education. It overlaps with your job. It overlaps with how you're able to educate your children, what acceptable education for your children is. You might not know. So if you don't know, how does how do you know to know for your child? And so it's cyclical and layered. Well, so, Marissa, what about it? we're kind of focusing on the the consumer or the user, so to speak here. But is there an issue on the other end from the provider's uh, perspective? Yes. So. When you, like I was talking about, if you're going to your, you get to the provider, they're trying, they're telling you what's wrong with you and what you need to do to increase your health. But they're saying it in words like hypertension and just these big words that you may not be familiar with. And like what Kelly was saying, a lot of people don't want to admit that they don't know. So then the communication's not really happening there because there's just, not an understanding, and then you're really not getting anywhere. So bringing that type of information down to the most basic literacy level using that plain language so that you can really reach those patients is really the best thing to do for them. What, what are the options for a provider? Are there things that they can do or are there resources for them that can help them walk yes. through this? Some of the, the best resources really is plainlanguage.gov. You can put any of your communications in there and they will um, spit it back to you in plain language. So it can kind of really show either if you're pretty close to plain language or if you're not close at all. Um, and you can kind of make those changes. And uh, I'm going to guess here that most doctors aren't very good with the plain language or am I being too general there? <laughs> well, plain it's plain language to them, right? Right. So they are speaking their plain language, but it's the need for professionals to come out of their profession and talk the plain language of the people, right? And so, you know, if you use the example of two professionals, a rocket scientist and a doctor, and they're talking about their day and the equipment that they use and the tools and, you know, the, the software both are intelligent, right? Both have degrees, both are, you know, they they are competent in their fields, but that doctor is not going to know what that rocket scientist is talking about. That rocket scientist is not going to know what the doctor is talking about. So imagine someone who is not a rocket scientist who may have a fifth grade reading level trying to understand these large words that medical professionals actually had to train to learn. It's not like medicalese is their native language, right? They had to learn that. And so most of us have not had to learn that. And so it, it's it's understanding that piece. It's it's really understanding that plain language is plain language of the people, not plain language of the profession. 
And I can assure you that most people remind me frequently that I am not a rocket scientist, so I know exactly <laughs> what, you're, what you're getting at here. Um, so, Marissa, you, uh, you were part of uh, developing a, the Health Literacy Week that happened in, in October. Uh, what was the, I guess the we, I guess we already understand, the goal to a certain extent, but t- talk about maybe the, the execution of it and how you tried to outreach. Yes. Yeah, so Health Literacy Week happened in October, which is International Health Literacy Month. Okay. Um, so Erie County Department of Health and Literacy Buffalo Niagara, we wanted to make a week just for Erie County to just try and raise awareness about health literacy, what it is, that it's a problem in our community. Um, and it, this was the first year we did it. So we really wanted to raise awareness and we want to make it an annual thing. Okay. Um, we just tried to blast out as much information as we could during the week um, and reach just reach as many people in the community. I'm somewhat familiar uh, from some past experiences of, of the when it comes to literacy and trying to uh, work with people who are, whether they want to, uh, English as a second language mm-hmm. or, or just trying to develop better literacy skills. Is it the same concept then when it comes to health? literacy as it is to literacy overall are, are you using to, trying to use the same types of messaging and the same types of techniques yes yeah, so really the thought was that if you have low literacy you are in turn going to have low health literacy so obviously we want to reach as many people as we can so we can see everyone in erie county literate that's our vision i mean that's what we'd love to see so when it comes to health literacy just getting folks familiar with the healthcare system, healthcare terminology, and how things work. You know, that's interesting when you talk about the healthcare system because there are some key elements that people do need to understand about the healthcare system. There's a, a common, you know, when I'm sick, what do I do, mm-hmm. right? What about that? How, are, what about the messaging there? Let's use, use the opportunity right now to talk about that. Mm-hmm. What p- should people do? Well, whether you're health literate or not, and I, I'd, I'd like to think that a lot of us, no matter how educated we are, are not necessarily all that literate when it comes to understanding what we need to do when we're having an issue. Yeah, and so I, um, to this point, when we consider making an appointment for a specialist, right? That specialty might be endocrinology. <laughs> what okay. do they do? Right. Right. I know I'm going to the doctors. I don't have any physical signs of illness that I see. They told me some blood number is off and I've got to go see this fancy name doctor. I don't know what that is. I don't know what they're going to do. Is this, first of all, it's probably going to be more time off from work, right? But if someone doesn't even have a basic understanding of what the issue is, how do they then prioritize in their life where that issue should go, right? And so someone may have an issue and they they do need to see an endocrinologist. Is it a a general phone number? Um, What do I say when I call? Is someone going to call me back and tell me what I need to bring? Do I need to bring anything? Um, Do you have the medical records that you need so that when I come in and see you, I can actually have a productive appointment versus me taking off from work and coming in to see you and I'm there only to sign paperwork so you can then go get the records that you need in order to see me. Like that is a lot. Right. And then I have to come back and make another appointment, which means I've got to take off from work again. 
are we actually going to do something this time? So from a, a layperson's perspective, a lot of, of medicine and the layers in medicine don't seem important because there's no urgency. You know, it's like, oh, you just get this, it, you know, see this doctor in three to six months. Okay, that's not important then. I, I probably will never see that doctor. So being able to understand that process is one of the things that uh, we try and do, you know, when it, when it comes to educating people. So I'll give you an example. The okay. Office of Health Equity has a newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter. And it's not like your typical, you know, newsletter you get in the mail. Um, we want it to address these upstream issues. We want it to address things like health literacy and how to use the system because people don't know. So we have an issue coming out. It's actually civil service, which kind of is related to health literacy if you think of it from a, like a health insurance perspective. But we are teaching people how to apply for the job, what to say in your application, um, you know, what, how to sign up for email updates, because people don't understand the system of being able to have a county job. Um, growing up, in, you know, you, you go to these resume writing classes and they tell you, you know, write your resume for the job that you want. Use big words and sell yourself. That doesn't work in county government. You have to have the exact qualifications that are listed in that job description. And so if it says you need to be able to type using a keyboard, don't say I am an expert at the execution of pressing, you know, <laughs> tabular buttons in order to produce, a, you know, like, right, right, right. I can type. Yeah. Right. And so people need to understand the system. So similarly, when it comes to health literacy, we're working on a Know Your Numbers uh, newsletter, and that will walk people through knowing why it's important to know your A1C level as it relates to diabetes, uh, why it's important to know your glucose levels, why it's important to know your weight, why it's important to know your high blood pressure and what those things mean to your health. Um, you know, we teach people, you teach kids to brush your teeth twice a day. What we don't tell them and what we don't tell adults is that brushing your teeth at night, removing the plaque has a direct relation to your heart health. We need to tell people not, I mean, yes, brush your teeth to keep your teeth. That's like really important, right? right? But brush your teeth to heal your heart. That's a different level of importance that people may get. Right. So it's understanding how to take all the medical ease mm -hmm. and all the research and all of the big words and putting them into those everyday words that people understand and using examples that they actually will confront. So what about that, Marissa, when it came to the Health Equity Week and the information that you got? got what, how did you guys go about trying to, to get that information out there? What kind of information were you sharing? We tried to share from a bunch of different angles. So we focused on how does health literacy affect someone's life? If you have low health literacy, it's going to be hard to take care of yourself, your kids. It's going to be hard to understand doctors, that stuff. We talked about the plain language. Um, how can organizations help and make their information easier to access to the greater population? Um, we also talked about how can you get involved, like how can you help um, if you know anyone with health literacy or low literacy, putting them in the right direction to just build that skill so they can advocate for themselves. Um, 
that was that was pretty much it. Yeah, focus. Mm -hmm. We're talking with um, uh, Marissa Calasanti from uh, Literacy Buffalo, Niagara, and Kelly Walford, the director of the Erie County Office of Health Equity, talking about health literacy uh, here in Western New York. There was Health Literacy Week in October, and uh, uh, glad to be here um, talking to to both of you. Uh, I know that uh, there. I think didn't your office uh, Kelly put together a, a survey? Or you're trying to put out a, mm -hmm. a survey when it comes to kind of encompassing these needs. I mean, where are we at with that in, in that stage right now? So the survey is available on our, our website, um, which is like eerie.gov slash a whole bunch of different links, right? <laughs> if, if you ask Siri or Google to find the health equity survey for Erie County, that's probably the fastest way you'll be able to get to it. Sure. Um, but the purpose of the survey is to ask everyday people how they're managing. Right. How are you managing with your finances? How are you managing with purchasing groceries? How are you managing, you know, with your home? It's it, it, it that is different than the typical survey of how many vegetables do you eat um, or how much you know money do you have saved? How much is your rent versus how much you're bringing in? We didn't want to know those questions. We right. wanted to know how people are managing because perception really is everything, right? And we can better address a person's need if we know what's really affecting them. We have data that tells us, you know, all this information about health outcomes and the social determinants of health, but the people who we want to to help and who we want to ensure that they have a, a better health outcome, they know what it is they need. And so it's not for us to look at the data and say, we're going to talk about diabetes and we're going to talk about transportation and we're going to talk about education. If the people want to talk about housing and they want to talk about safe streets and they want to talk about um access to uh, produce, right? So our job with this survey is to find out what people want to talk about, find out how they're doing. Um, one of the questions is around finances. And it, it was something like, how do you feel about your finances? Do you have enough money to pay your bills? Uh, do you have enough money to pay your bills and save? Do you not have enough money to pay your bills, right? Because that's really what we want to know. Sure. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much money is in the bank. How much, do you have enough money to be able to live your life? Let me ask you that. Obviously, when it comes to a survey, you're waiting and try to compile as much mm -hmm. information as you can. But are you hearing certain um, certain trends, certain stories that are sticking out that are highlighting specific issues that maybe you already suspected, but mm -hmm. you're getting a concrete feel for now? So we have um, public health educators that go out and they're the ones that are getting the community members to fill out the surveys. And they come back with anecdotal stories, you know, conversations that they've had with people. And um, a lot of folks have survey fatigue. They're always taking a survey. Some organization always wants to know something. Uh, and so it's imperative that they're able to say why we're doing the survey. And once they're, they, the educators give the why, the response of the community member totally changes. And it's like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll definitely fill this out um, because we want to know what we need in order to help them. It's not, 
you know, what do you have going on so we can figure out what we want to do for us? How can we help you? And so that's been the the overwhelming response. We haven't gone into um, really diving into the data. Right. Um, we have over 2,200 valid survey responses, which is incredible. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, yeah. Um, we have... Uh, more like 2,700 responses, but they've taken out all of the bot responses and people that live in Erie, Pennsylvania, and you know, all of those people notwithstanding. We have over 2,200 responses, which is incredible. But we are going to take that data and then we're going to go into communities and have those heart to heart conversations because there's more to a person than just a number that they've selected on the screen, right? We wanna know the stories around the answers that they gave. And so we will examine the data, see what people are saying in those, you know, Likert scales and select as many, you know, that apply and then go back to the folks and say, all right, this is what everybody said. How about you? You know, what is your story? How does your story fit and track with what's happening right now? Marissa, I saw you nodding vociferously there as, uh, as Kelly was speaking. I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on what she was saying. And another aspect to this as well is you, you come into this position from a marketing standpoint as well. So you have that, that understanding of how to get to the user sometimes, mm -hmm. right? And that's what marketing is all about, how to, how to uh, attract the user and, and get a message to them. What about that in, in terms of what Kelly was saying? What are some of your thoughts? I mean, I think it's great to look deeper into the numbers. Like she was saying, the numbers are really important, and it's really important, obviously, to have valid data. But actually going back and saying, why are the numbers like this? Why is Why are these the results the way they are? And you have to really get into that story. And then once you find the story, that's where you're going to figure out, okay, this is how I'm going to talk to these how I'm going to reach this audience. This is how I'm going to reach people who need to help us. This is how, this is our community story and we all are invested in it. Um, it's just, I think that's great. What, your office mm -hmm. was created um, in what, December of 2021? Do I have my, my 2020? Wait, uh, what year is this? Yeah, we're in 2022. So okay, 20, so yes, 21. So about a year ago. <laughs> and it, it basically, if I if I recall, the it came out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. What really how the pandemic took the understanding or perhaps maybe pulled back the curtain mm -hmm. on some of these issues. Let's just talk about that a little bit. What about those issues that were seen? Obviously, they were probably like, I, could, I can imagine the administration came to you and said, well, we've got this office now. Here you go, Kelly. Yeah, make it happen. <laughs> Here are these issues. What <laughs> yeah. about those? What are those? Um, you know, I use the example of going to the doctor, right, and taking off from, from work. That's a big deal for many people. Um, if you are in a low-paying job, you also have low, not high standard benefits. Right. Um, so do you have time off? Is your job flexible to allow you to take time off for a doctor's appointment? If you um, have transportation issues, which many people in our community, urban, suburban, and rural, have transportation issues. So how do I get to work and then from work to the doctor's office and then back to work if I need to get back to work? Or how do I make sure my kids are on their bus and then I need to get on my bus to get to the doctor's in order to then 
take care of whatever the medical issue may be and then get to work. And so again, it goes back to being layered, but we have to take the time to understand each of the pieces and then how each of the pieces interrelates with the other pieces. Um, You know, no group is a monolith, no um, community is a monolith. And so we need to do and are, are working very hard to better understand Erie County and Erie County residents. Um, One of the things that we started to do, and it's a part of the survey, is to break out certain um, uh, uh, ethnic groups. So normally when you fill out a survey, it it says, you know, "Are are you Hispanic? Yes or no? That's it, right? But if you are, that is a wide ranging, um, that word, encompasses cultures and countries that very few people can list. Like if you list all of the cultures and countries that make up being Hispanic, right? These are not the same groups of people, but we're lumping them all together. So we're breaking that out. Hispanic, yes or no. If yes, you know, what is your ancestry? What is your association? Uh, You know, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Dominican, because that changes the type of work we do. And the same thing with our Asian residents. Um, People come to America, people come to Erie County for different reasons. And we know that some people from Asia come for education purposes. Other people come because of their their fleeing, you know, unsafe and unsafe environment. And so they have very different life circumstances. We have to understand that we can't just rubber stamp a program or rubber stamp an, an initiative for Asian people or for Latinos or for black and American people. Um, One of the things with black folks, you know, someone from Jamaica does not consider themselves an African-American. They're black, but they're not African-American. They're Jamaican. And so we need to understand and be more aware of the cultures that are a part of these, you know, four options that we give people to identify by. Interesting how you said these are not monoliths, these ethnic groups. At the same time, when it comes to people of color and trust when it comes to the healthcare profession, we've heard stories about this to a certain extent that there can be a difficult element mm-hmm. there be beyond literacy, just a trust issue. Mm-hmm. Is that is that real? It's real. And it's real for different reasons. Um, you know, when you look at the history of African-Americans in the United States, there are very real, specific, tangible things you can point to in our recent history, as well as what probably happened last week. Right. Um, when it came to COVID, we had different responses and different answers to questions because we learned more about COVID. But if I hear your first response, which is the information we had at the time, right? Right. And I make a decision based upon that. And then a month later, you're telling me something different. I don't know what, what, what am I supposed to, to listen to? What you said last week or what you said today? Couple that with, I don't trust you to begin with. So now you're showing me that you're lying, the perception of people, sure. right? Because you're giving me two separate things to do. Right. You're telling me to respond in two separate ways. You want me to take the vaccine. All right. But then you tell me I need to take another one because the first one didn't work. But you told me that the first one was going to work. What do you 
you know, we have to understand that people have legitimate questions based upon the facts that we've given people at the time, let alone the mistrust that comes from, um, you know, black bodies being used to better understand medicine. Mm. Like those are facts that is not meant to hurt anybody's feelings. That's literally what happened. People were operated on without anesthesia. That literally happened. Those were black bodies. Recent history, the the foundation of gynecology, black women were given hysterectomies without anesthesia. Like that literally happened. I don't get my teeth clean without them numbing my gums. You mean to tell me that people were operated on without anesthesia and without consent? So how do I know that even though I sign these papers and you're telling me that this is what you're doing, that this is what you're actually doing? It, it just, they're the facts of our history. I, I want to dive into just a little bit about uh, the COVID vaccine mm-hmm. a little bit. You came into your office a year ago, so in some ways you were coming in toward the end of mm-hmm. uh, some of this conversation. But there was the, and I believe this was a fact, I don't have it in front of me, that initially when it came to the vaccine, there were pockets inside of the city of Buffalo, usually very heavily, um, uh, heavy uh, populations of people of color inside mm-hmm. these things that were not getting vaccinated, but yes. that seemed to change. Is it, that is that first fact? Did it change as as we moved forward? And 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 do you have an understanding of why? It did change, and it changed for um, a couple of of key reasons. There were some organizations, including the Buffalo Center for Health Equity, um, ECMC, uh, that understood we had to do this differently. Right. We could not have even if you go into the community and go to the Delaware and Grider Community Center, which was a a vaccination location and um, say, all right, this is for the community. But then you don't allow the community to come because you released it via social media that the site was opening. How was I supposed to find out? I don't follow Erie County's. Social, and if I did, I'm not looking to it for that. Okay. Right. We have to understand community and how cultures work. So um, the, these groups of people got together, including the county. Everyone was at the table trying to address the current uh, uh uh, disparity that um, black and brown people were dying at twice the rates of their white counterparts. We had to have some real conversations, right? And so we had to peel back the social determinants of health, right? Again, going back to transportation and going to the doctor. I've got to come to you and get this shot, but you're only taking people from this age to that age. I've got a multi-generational home. I need to bring everybody at one time. I can't bring my grandma today. And in three weeks, maybe if you change the regulations, then I can come and get my shot. And then, you know, what about my kids, right? So even for those people that wanted to be vaccinated, there were so many layers to being vaccinated that it, it made it just not uh, uh, logical, it didn't easy fall, It just didn't fall into decision. place. Yeah. yeah. And so we had to have pop-ups. Um, we understood that people, instead of forcing them to make an appointment for two weeks from now, people don't know what they're going to be doing two weeks from now, right? You can come in tomorrow and get a shot. Well, I'm available tomorrow, so let me go in tomorrow at this this community center pop-up place in order to get the vaccination. And so um, understanding the needs of the people, taking the vaccine to where people were, changing registration um, so that it wasn't just go online. You could also phone call, you know, call the number to sign up. Um, Again, 
we um, didn't have um, the 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 hindsight that we have now, right? And it required us to be nimble, but it required us to really look at it from the perspective of the people, not the perspective of the professionals. Now we're coming down to our, our final uh, two minutes of our, our segment here, but Marissa, I'm, I'm I'm curious from your perspective here, kind of new to this portion of the of the field, but I'm also interested in that marketing uh, background that you have. Takeaways that you that you've come away with from uh, from this experience and and trying to get out the word when it comes to health literacy? I think that kind of what Kelly was saying, putting yourself in the mindset of who you're trying to talk to is probably really important. Um, When we did this, we were kind of trying to talk to everyone, which isn't always the best. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not used to spreading health information i'm usually right. you know selling products or something like that <laughs> so it was, it was nice to be doing something that was you know actually important um so i look forward to keep working on stuff like that <laughs> all right and uh we got about um just the final then about 30 seconds here kelly in your new office are you optimistic oh yes every day it's hard work but it's work that can be done all right and then that's how we tackle it one day at a time Excellent conversation this morning. Kelly Wolfert, Director of the Erie County Office of Health Equity. Marissa Colasanti from Literacy Buffalo Niagara talking about health literacy here. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Interested in inspiring and informing future generations through the programming provided by WBFO? A gift through your will or estate plan is a wonderful legacy to leave our community. For more information, visit wned.org legacy or contact Colleen Miller at cmiller at wned.org. Thank you. To recognize Veterans Day and Native American Heritage Month, Buffalo Toronto Public Media and the Buffalo History Museum invite you to a screening of the WNED PBS original production, The Warrior Tradition. A lot of people ask, why did you join the white man's war? This is our home. This has always been our home. And part of the commitment to protecting and defending your home led to military service. Join us on November 9th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Buffalo History Museum for this special screening. Register at wned.org events. Who better to show off the fantastic towns of Western New York and Southern Ontario than the people who live there? Check out the popular WNED PBS Our Town series now on YouTube. Debuting this week is Our Town Ellicottville. Filmed by community members in 2005, it features nightlife, skiing, shopping, quaint places to stay, and so much more. Head to the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel to watch and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this. If you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you. Pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to wned.org vehicles. 
And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. Good morning. This is Dave Debo. This weekend, Saturday, at Canisius College in their Montante Center, there will be a discussion about race. Renowned author Robin DiAngelo and local educator Nanette Massey will talk about moving beyond white fragility and having candid discussions. And it's no coincidence that the title of D'Angelo's book is White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race. Robin is here now for the rest of the hour uh, to talk about both the book and the workshop. Robin, thanks so much for joining us. So glad to be with you. Thank you. Premise of your book that whites have too thin skin. Am I overstating it, do you think? (laughs) No, I don't. Uh, Yeah, we have a very thin skin when it comes to the topic of race, uh, especially when it comes to the suggestion that race is not just individual conscious intentional meanness that only some people have or engage in, but that it's an actual system. It's the system we live in, and therefore all of us are complicit in it. There's really no neutral place. And that tends to unsettle those of us who have been taught to see it uh, as very a simple matter of uh, good and bad. If it is systemic, then yes. it sounds like you're saying people don't always realize that they have a role in that. Because it's systemic, it doesn't require intent. It's the status quo, business as usual, unremarkable, generally not noticed. Uh, I, I think the metaphor that works for me is currents in the water. And when you move with the current, it's certainly impacting the efforts of your swimming, but you don't really notice it. When you move against that current, you're usually acutely aware of its existence. So because white people move with that current, we tend not to notice it. And we come to expect the advantages it grants us as something we're entitled to rather than something that not everybody has access to. And talk about, again, the thin-skinnedness. It's such a charged topic for us because the idea that only bad, mean people would ever participate in racism, that when you suggest that we're all participating in racism, we hear that as some kind of accusation to our very moral uh, character. And so we respond typically with defensiveness uh, and either arguing or throwing up our hands and leaving the room or um, a whole range of responses, all of which push away that suggestion and inadvertently maintain that status quo. So there's, uh, to my mind, there's almost two categories. There's obviously the people with torches and hoods, and then there's everybody else who doesn't necessarily think that they are racist, but may have all sorts of implicit racism inside them. It's that last group you're talking about, right? Yeah, and I think um, it's so much more useful to think of it as a continuum. So maybe on the far end of that continuum are the people with the, with the torches and what I would call avowed white nationalist. Uh, but there's another end to that continuum. So I often say that my uh, forms of enacting or upholding this system don't look like that, but they do look like something. And so it's on me to try to uh, uncover what that looks like for me. And you'll notice that, uh, again, that idea that it's either those people with the torches or it's not, right, is what I think of as that good-bad binary, that either-or. And those of us who have the implicit bias 
take offense when it's pointed out to us? Is that also part of the fragility? So the first thing is that it is not humanly possible not to have bias or prejudgments, right? We, we all absorb those. There isn't, and I'll just say something bold here, I don't believe anyone grows up in this country not knowing that it's better to be white than it is to be black. Not that white people are inherently better, although that's kind of woven in there, but that it's just simply better to be white uh, in, in this country. So that's an example of messages we've absorbed, and we're unconsciously acting on those messages if we're not challenging them. So that's an example of, of implicit bias, and it's an example of what I mean when I say we're all part of it. Robin D'Angelo is with us. She's part of a workshop coming to Canisius College this weekend. Take me through what that looks like. Based on everything you have just said, does your workshop try then to get white people to understand that, hey, you're helping a system and that it is systemic and that you need to be a part of dismantling a system specifically? Yes, or at least um, engage with curiosity. Huh, (laughs) what are these folks who've been studying this and involved in this for decades What are they saying? What do they mean when they say racism? Uh, And how might that be different than what I mean? And am I willing to at least calmly listen so I can take it in and then reflect on it? I mean, that if we even got that far, we would would have progress. So one of the uh, wonderful aspects of this particular workshop that's coming up is that it's going to be co-led in an interracial team. So while my work is you know, as a white person, I'm speaking to other white people. And I think that's a critical part of understanding, you know, what it means to be white. Uh, I don't believe we'll ever understand what we need to uh, without listening to black people and other people of color, Uh, particularly in such a sensitive time in Buffalo around the shooting at Tops. And so I have the great honor of co-leading this workshop with Nanette Massey, who is a local a citizen of Buffalo. And so you're going to get both perspectives, right? Both sides of that coin, kind of the insider's perspective on what it means to be white and an outsider's perspective uh, on what it means to be white. And so we're, we're going to offer those two perspectives. We're going to unpack uh, the, this, we're going to unpack the concept of systemic racism, help people understand it, um, and offer some hopefully inspirational opportunities for deep reflection that, of course, we hope translates into action. How does that play out? What kind of reactions do you get from people as you lead them through this? Well, at this point, typically someone who comes is open and willing, and they may have a range of reactions over the course of the several hours. I hope they have a range of reactions. If there's no emotional response, we're probably not being particularly effective. And uh, some of those reactions will include defensiveness or, or guilt, those are natural responses when coming to terms with the reality that we're all part of a system that we didn't choose and, and wouldn't want to consciously or intentionally engage in. But we do need to move through and past them. They're not constructive. It's not useful. Guilt is not our goal. Uh, and when you do understand it as a system that you were socialized into but didn't choose, it actually makes guilt a moot point, right? And let, let's, let's move forward. Never mind that. It doesn't serve anybody. And let's get to some action. You don't say, let's look at how we got here. You let you say, uh, let's look at where we are. There's a little bit. You, you do have to help set up. When you're talking about what systemic racism means, there's a little bit of needing to go back to the past. But 
it's most useful to be in the here and now. So you're going to hear, uh, you may have heard before this claim, I didn't own slaves, right? And, and I want to help white people understand that actually it's not dependent on whether you did or didn't own enslaved people. Um, what does it look like today? How did that foundation of our country adapt and translate and keep uh, producing really similar outcomes, you know, 100 years later? One of the things that I know you include in your book is the a discussion of the concept of color blindness, the idea that in order for things to progress, we should just see everybody as the same. Poke a hole or 17 in that. Um, well, we're not colorblind. We do notice race. And whether we're consciously noticing it or not, and I do think, of course, we do consciously notice it, but all of the stereotypes that then come with it, we may not necessarily be aware of. Um, but it's not useful to pretend that we don't notice it. That would be like you and I right now. Um, I identify as a woman. I'm cisgender and my pronouns are she, her. May I ask yours? He, him. So you and I are having this conversation. On some level, I'm aware that you're a man. And I hope that on some level you're holding that I am a woman. And there are certain places we may go or may not go because of that. There is a, a certain sensitivity that I hope you would have that there's a history of harm between our groups um, and there are certain things you're not going to ask me or comment on because that that would not be appropriate appropriate or sensitive and it's very similar with race uh, or disability or any other form of human difference that carries deep social meaning to pretend that those things don't exist is basically to pretend you're having the exact same experience I'm having <laughs> Uh, and that we're, we're going to miss a great deal. But isn't it noble and great and right of me not to notice our difference, to think of us automatically in the theoretical equal? Because I think that's the rationale that people put forth for the, the colored blindness. It's, it's, yeah, I don't notice that so-and-so is black. I just look at him or her as an individual. That's the argument, at least. Yeah, I, I can share a couple of um, moments where um, a black person responded to that. Uh, one was a black man I was co-leading with, and a white woman said, I don't even think of you as black or see you as black. And he basically said, well, let's start with, is there any visual impairment you have? <laughs> no? Okay. Well, um, I am black. I know that you can see that. And how are you going to see or challenge racism if you refuse to acknowledge um, that I'm having a different experience than that. There's a quote from a black woman named Pat Parker, and which I love and I think speaks to this. And she says, first, forget that I'm black. <laughs> and I think what she means is stop reducing me to that. Stop having that be the only thing I can ever speak to or represent. And then she says, and second, don't ever forget that I'm black. Mm. <laughs> and I think what she means there is that and I'm having a different experience than you. So how do you not reduce me to that, but how do you never take that off the table because it is a, a profound part of, of life in this country? So I think that, again, the both-end thinking is much more useful. So in some ways, colorblindness is ignoring someone's blackness and therefore their black experience, diminishing it. Um, if, if I don't see it, Oh, it's just, I don't know, not really a big part of your history. Don't worry about it. 
Right. It's a refusal to see or to acknowledge. It's also denial because we do see it. <laughs> so I just want you to imagine I come to you as a woman in your workplace. Let's say it's a male-dominated workplace. And I share with you some experiences I'm having as a woman there. And you look at me and say, I don't see you as a woman. I mean, that would be kind of absurd. <laughs> I'd be like, well, I am. And you need to. And it's impacting what's happening here. And I need you uh, as an ally to that. And if you're going to insist you don't even notice, uh, we're not going to we're not going to get anywhere. How much of a role in all of this uh, from the, the bit of your writing that I've seen Denial is a huge component of almost all parts of the discussion. I, I think it is a, a foundational part of the discussion. But it, it's, it's based on ignorance, right? In this, in this country, you can receive a graduate degree, be certified as highly educated, and never have discussed systemic racism, right? So, so we simply aren't taught uh, but unfortunately, when we have the opportunity to learn, we often refuse that. And it does serve us <laughs> to deny that this is happening. If we, if we deny that it's happening, we don't have to do anything to change it. Um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi says, uh, by every measure across every institution, you're going to see racially inequitable outcomes with black and indigenous people typically at the bottom. And I don't think most people would deny that reality, that that is the reality. Uh, but how we explain that, of course, will vary. And Ibram X. Kendi says, really, there's only two overall explanations. Either, you know, white people are superior, and that's why they're at the top of virtually everything, and black and indigenous people are inferior, and that's why they're at the bottom, <laughs> or systemic racism, right? And, you know, I do not think any group of people is inherently inferior, so uh, I'm going to look at systemic racism. I've talked to Ibram Kendi on this program and, and I think the, the best way to summarize a lot of what he says is that complacency is complicity, basically. There's no neutral place. Uh, Beverly Tatum uses the metaphor of a, the moving walkway at the airport, right? Um, inaction is a form of action. It, it, it's, a, it's a choosing to be silent and complicit in the face of injustice. All right. Now, talk to me a little bit about then inaction. If I care deeply, if I have the best of intentions... Is the road to hell paved with good intentions? If I'm just really <laughs> care a lot about this topic and not doing anything, that, to my mind, is almost worse than the deniers that we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Yeah, I, I actually think most people, most white people, care a lot about this topic, are very emotional about this topic. But if that caring translates into, I refuse to have my worldview challenged in any way, and any conversation we have about race, I'm just going to, what I call, rehearse the same opinions I always say. I'm going to continue to insist that I don't see color. Um, yeah, that's deeply problematic. And black people and other people of color have been telling us that for a long time. Uh, we're not colorblind. It's not useful to them. Uh, a black woman I used to co-lead with, her name's Erin Trent Johnson, used to say, when I hear a white per person say that, what I'm thinking to myself is this is a dangerous white person. This is a white person who's going to deny my reality and who is likely going to be very defensive to any challenge uh, to the way that they see the world and themselves in it. This is a white person who's not particularly self-aware. Right? That's what we're actually conveying. 
uh, not what we think we are. <laughs> and it's maddening. Yes, it's frustrating. No, it's not uh, somebody marching with a tiki torch. But most black people and other people of color aren't hanging out every day with people who march with tiki torches. They're hanging out with folks like you and I, well-intended, <laughs> passionate, upholders of social justice as, as we see it. And we are the ones that cause so much frustration uh, through these kinds of dynamics. In that regard, I want to pull a quote out of the book. Hopefully we can lend enough context to it because I don't want to just use the quote as inflammatory as it appears to be. But I have seen you say, I believe that white progressive caused the most daily damage to people of color. Yeah. Explain. Um, as I said a little bit earlier, we are the ones most likely to be around people of color. Um, I, I have heard countless black people say, give me that in-your-face white nationalist because I know where they're coming from. It's on the table. I know how to protect myself. The kinds of unconscious bias that, that folks like you and I hold um, is much harder to get your hands on. There's more gaslighting. And it's, it's debilitating in a different kind of way. It's those thousand daily cuts. So I'm going to say something else that may be controversial, um, and that is this idea of white guilt um, as being the, the great barrier to why white people can't engage in this conversation uh, and this accusation that we only want them to feel guilty. And again, I have no interest and not very much patience in white guilt. Um, it, it tends to function as an excuse for inaction. But I wonder if maybe what we really feel guilty about is that we're listening to this conversation right now and we know that we're really not going to do anything different at all. We're just going to continue to be nice. And so let me, let me say something about niceness because that's the title of my follow-up book to White Fragility, Nice Racism. Niceness is great, <laughs> uh, but niceness is not the answer to racism. So we might ask ourselves why we think niceness is the best response to racial injustice. <laughs> um, niceness is not courageous. Niceness isn't going to get racism on the table and it's not going to keep it on the table when people want to push it back off. Niceness tends to be a conflict avoidant culture. A culture of niceness tends to be a conflict avoidant culture uh, and a culture that really seeks to maintain white comfort. The status quo is racism. And so I live, love, work, play, create uh, in a racist society in which I feel comfortable. I mean, just, just take that in for a minute. I'm comfortable as a white person in a racist culture. So we're not going to get where we need to go from a place of white comfort. And this idea of niceness and just smiling and that's the answer is not going to get us where we need to go. Take me through the process. What happens at workshops like the one you're bringing to Buffalo? Well, you'd have an opportunity to share what you were hoping to get. Um, a lot of information comes from the audience, you know, get, sharing that. There will be a section where we lay down and explain the key concepts like systemic racism, concepts like white supremacy, concepts that can be charged uh, and help people understand how they're being used and what they mean so that we can be on the same page in the conversation. We'll share some really specific, hopefully familiar and relatable examples for people to talk about. There'll be some opportunity for small group discussion uh, and then ending with where do we go from here? And of course, we're not going to solve racism, you know, on that morning mm. <laughs> and afternoon. Um, but 
my goal is that people come away seeing more of it than they saw before and enough of it to be unable to carry on with what they were formally doing and that they want to keep engaging, keep learning, keep reading, keep talking. And we've had Nanette on this program to discuss some of these issues before. Talk a little bit about her role and how the two of you uh, interact with each other. Yeah, Nanette Massey's is just powerhouse black woman, local to Buffalo, um, who actually um, read White Fragility when it first came out, thought it really spoke to um, the dynamic that she was very familiar with, and she began to teach workshops based on my book. Uh, and that came to my attention a couple years ago. I sat in on one of her workshops, thought it was phenomenal, right? So she's taking um, the concepts in the book, but she's feeding them through the filter of her experience as a black woman. So it's really the best, the ideal approach. Um, and we just began to connect. I was a guest speaker for her in one of her classes, and this led to come to Buffalo, let's do something together, and particularly following the top shooting um, and see if we can offer um, kind of a, a reinvigoration to the community. Do people come away from these sessions changed or just more self-aware? I think there's a, a range. There are people who who will come away, I hope, and say, oh my God, right, that was transformative. I'm set forward on a new path. Of course, that would be the dream. For others, it will be another piece to their understanding that expands um, their understanding. Uh, there will maybe some who are um, a little bit unsettled and need time for it to percolate and sit. Uh, hopefully that it will percolate and it will lead them forward. There, there's just such a range in how people respond. Um, I would say overall, uh, they find it to be a really powerful and positive experience. Why do you do this work? I do believe that the purpose of my life is to somehow contribute to a more just world, right? Um, we can look back over recorded history and say, well, domination and oppression and inequality seem to be um, natural. We've certainly, as long as we've recorded history, that's what we've seen. And so has resistance to domination and oppression. So has striving for social justice. Those are both natural human responses or conditions. And I want to be on the striving for social justice side. I did grow up in poverty as a female. Uh, I, I understood at a very early age that the world was not fair. Um, I have a lot of humiliation and pain about uh poverty in my life. We had periods of homelessness as a child and so forth. Um, and when I realized, oh my goodness, I actually am contributing to somebody else's pain. It's not the same, but it was an entry point and one in which I'm in what we might call the more dominant position. I'm in the position where my voice has a different kind of weight than if I'm trying to speak against, say, sexism or classism. And so to not use this position is unconscionable to me. Do you think in all the time that you've done this that you have seen change and progress? Or do you continue to do it because there hasn't been any? I don't believe racism will end in my lifetime. Definitely not. I mean, think back to when Obama was president and how many people said we are now post-racial. And now look where we are. I don't think anybody's in denial that we are not post-racial. So it's a highly adaptive system. It can adapt to challenges and changes, incorporate those, and keep on keeping on. We actually have more permission to be explicitly racist today following Obama's presidency than we did before. And 
uh, I do see changes. Uh, the concept of systemic racism is in the mainstream now. That's foundational. We have to understand it as a system, not as a simple either or about good people or bad people. I see much more representation uh, in media, uh, in, in organizations, and so on. But I will repeat, it's, it's more of a push-pull than an arc of progress. So there are heartening changes, uh, but it is still quite alive and well, and if anything, uh, accelerated. So we can never be complacent. This is lifelong work. And maybe that's a key challenge I like to offer nice white progressives who are well-intentioned, is we haven't arrived and we're not finished. I've been working on this for decades and I still on occasion perpetuate racial harm. It's not a reason to give up. It's a reason to uh, understand what I did, repair, and keep moving forward. Robin, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. Robin D'Angelo is the author of White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Race. And she's part of a workshop all day on Saturday at Canisius College. You do have to pre-register. Details at NanetteDMassey.com or just Google Robin D'Angelo Canisius and it'll come up there. Tomorrow is our Producers Picks program. Please come back then at 10. We'll have more of this discussion then right here on your NPR stations, WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown. I'm Dave Debo. Thanks for listening.